0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 31. We're going to continue on today. And just so I could look at all this display and camps coming up and building your wall, and I saw all the tools over here and all these things. And just so you know, my message will be on the level this morning. (laughs) You know, most Baptist preachers, you can, back in my day, anyhow, you could always tell when their preaching was on the level. You know why? Because they always had the bubble in the middle. (coughs) (laughs) But uh, I'll have to use that for now. So anyway, last week, we were in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 19 and 20. And we, again, we've been adding week by week, very important principles. And I hope that you're marking them in your Bible, or at least putting them in a notebook as we come down through them, and, and this has been an amazing chapter. And you know, and we saw, we defined, uh, I think last week, uh, we got down to the bottom line of the real work uh, that one of all of us should be doing. And very simply, it comes down to making garments, making clothes. And how we, through the ministry, help people in basically two ways within the garment industry, spiritually speaking. And uh, first off, the Bible talks about Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. It talks about the garments of salvation. When a man or a woman is unsaved, they stand naked with their sin. And Adam and Eve, back in Genesis chapter 3, when they sinned, they realized that they were naked and they tried to take make aprons from leaves off of a tree, fig tree, to cover their nakedness because now they knew that they were. And God said, that's not going to work for you. So the Bible says that God took those from them and made them garments of salvation, killed an innocent animal, bet on it was lamb, and covered their nakedness. So the first garments that we have to offer for anybody who needs that covering will be the garment of salvation. The second one will be after you're saved, we should help people make the robe of righteousness through the things of the Bible, helping people learn, grow, and be everything that God wants them to be, getting to the place where, you know, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, we have a robe of righteousness, white, fine linen, which the Bible says is the righteousness of the saints. Uh, you know, one will cover the nakedness of your sin before you're saved. The other one will, after salvation, will cover the works of the flesh that will keep you from being clothed at the judgment seat of Christ. And a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago on a Thursday night, somebody asked a question along those lines, and we laid it out out of 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and talked about how that some people will actually show up at the judgment seat of Christ who never, 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 took seriously Proverbs chapter 31, and we're going to see it today a little bit farther in, a little deeper in, uh, and we'll wind up naked at the judgment seat of Christ. And, uh, and as we continue this week, as I said, we'll, we're going to develop the idea of, of a garment, the idea of your ability to make clothes or be a sewing person, a seamstress, as they say, making clothes. We're going to look at it a little bit deeper. And uh, last week uh, and this week, we'll we'll go together. So what I want to do is I want to start, I want to read what I did last week, the two verses, and then I want to add to it this week's verse, and then we can kind of put them all together. Last week, verses 19 and 20 said, She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretches out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her husband. This will be for today, uh, for, uh, for her household. For all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and, and purple. Uh, Chris Schmidt, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching this morning for me, please? All right, now look at verse 21 today, and we're gonna start with this. It says, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Now, this verse will be one of the most profound verses that you're gonna find uh, out of Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, It's right uh, alongside verse 16, where we talked about considering a field and buying it. This is an incredible verse. This is what I call... In Bible study or preaching, a sleeper verse. It it doesn't really look like much till you begin to open it up and look at the pieces. And man, it it, it gets legs and a life of its own, and it gets down pretty deep with some great principles. Now, let's define, first of all, some of the components of this verse so we can better get an understanding how we're going to put it together. First of all, it says, She's not afraid of the snow. Now, in the Bible, snow will always be associated with, obviously, wintertime, and, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a thing that also will be a time of, in the winter of not bearing fruit. Apple trees don't put apples out in February, and it will always be associated many times with the tough times that we go through in our life you know uh, the bible talks about the four seasons of life you know when you're first born it's the springtime of your life you grow up through that period of time and then you uh, get into summer which is the you know the the real active time of your life and as you get into your 40s and your 50s then you move into the fall and when you went into older age in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s then you know you're in the winter time of your life and uh, you know the the winter itself is given the affectionate term, old man wither, winner, because of the fact that it, it's associated with somebody who gets to that point in their life where uh, they're old by age and, uh, you know, don't have a long time to live. Psalms chapter one says, blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor siteth in the seat of the scornful. It talks about his delight being the law of the Lord, and then it says he shall bear fruit in his season, And in your life and my life, there's a season to our fruit bearing. Obviously, when you're in the springtime of your life, you you don't bear a lot of fruit because you're young and you're growing and you're learning. But when you get into the summertime and even into the fall and even into the early part of winter, that should be your fruit bearing season. But I'm going to tell you right now, most of God's people don't see that, don't care about that, don't even think about that. And I'm here to tell you this morning there is an end to your fruit-bearing season, sooner or later. You'll see this again in a great message that I want to preach to you at some point that I think is is probably... Of all the messages that I have heard in my life and have preached in my life, this probably is my favorite message that I could listen to probably every day, and I could probably preach it every day. I don't think I've ever preached it here. Maybe I did. I don't know, but it was a long time ago if I did. But I preached it before, and it's certainly one of my favorites, and it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul tells young Timothy, and this goes right along with us, he says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. Paul was in the winter time of his life he's killed shortly after this and uh, young Timothy obviously was coming to see him and he said he said do your diligence to get here before winter now i know that he said probably talking about winter time and it's hard to travel but i'm telling you also Paul understood that he was in the winter time in his life and uh, you know it's a thing where there's some things we all better do before winter time gets here and uh, snow now will always be associated with winter time. Job chapter 38, verse 22 says, hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow. That's kind of our little favorite verse in the wintertime when we have Bible study and, and it's really bad out and it's 10 inches of snow and it's blowing out there and, and most people can't come to church and don't want to take the chance to church, church. And, you know, I just say we don't cancel it for anything, you know, and... Maybe on a Thursday night Bible study or a Saturday morning, we'll get maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 people here out of the 150 that's normally here on Thursday night. And I always, and God always gives us something. And I, it's kind of a like joke with us because I, I, I did it years ago and done it ever since where I talk about you're here tonight, you made the effort here tonight. Now, God says in Job 38, 22, hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow. Let's see what God has for us tonight. And he always gives us something great. Doctrinally, okay. That snow there and the treasures is in the tribulation period. You know, the Book of Job, chapter thirty-eight. It's right there at the, when God turns the captivity of Job, so it fits into that. But inspirationally, I mean, I just took that and made that work because you know for our Bible studies because I saw it and God's blessed it. But de- bottom line, inspirationally, that verse has thou entered into the treasures of the snow. That that's the treasures that a man has has. Uh, stored up in his life all those years. Some guys walk with God 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, you know, and and, and stored up all that time, all the knowledge and the understanding of God and the Word of God and how invaluable he is. And to somebody like us or you, uh, his expertise and experiences that he had uh, would be invaluable in life through the Bible. So there's treasures in the winter, in the snow, in, in, in that sense. So a couple of different ways that y- you want to look at it. Now, in the context here, uh, it will it will represent a time in our children's lives when they now have to face, uh, we talked about this last week for churches in Revelation 3.10, the hour of temptation. And there'll be an hour of temptation that will come not only in your life as an individual, but as you have children, those children grow up, there'll become a time in their life when they are faced with some things. And uh, it'll be the day in their life when uh, uh, the world uh, wants to take away their fruit-bearing season. The world wants to destroy everything that God wants to to do with them. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, we talked about Ephesians last week, Bible talks about that there's an evil day coming that we're supposed to stand. And if you looked at the context of chapter 6, I know we always use it for the armor of God, and I get that. But if you go back in chapter 6, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5, you'll see the real context about this is your children. And uh, because there's an evil day coming in your child's life, and that's what Proverbs chapter 31 is preparing us for and allowing us to look on the inside and see that. And you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 says, Remember, talking to young people, remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. I preached a couple of years ago at camp about the evil day, and uh, I'm telling you. Proverbs chapter 31 is all about at this point preparing your children for that evil day, the winter time, that's going to come into their life. The example in the Bible in the Old Testament would be Daniel chapter 1, or really the whole book of Daniel, but in particular, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was just a young guy, just like most of our young people. And he had a family that was godly family who taught him from Daniel chapter one. The Bible very clearly states that they did, and yet Daniel is a young man along with his little companions that are in the, the part of the King's seed. They're in the line of Christ, and and the devil knows that Christ is going to come through that line and that seed. So the devil's running the world at this point through. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come down and take the nation of Israel into captivity and Daniel goes into that captivity. And what follows there is an incredible picture of that evil day that's going to come into your child's life that Proverbs chapter 31 is so uh, adamant about and you understand how this will work. And, uh, you know, Babylon represents the world system. Nebuchadnezzar represents the devil or the Antichrist. And what he wants to do, he takes these kids and, who are the king's seed, and then the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 that he gives them a daily portion of the filth of Babylon. He tries to change who they are. He tries to change their names. He tries to do everything he can because his agenda is, At the end of three years' time, he wants these kids who are a picture of our kids, who are of the king's seed, who the the future of God's kingdom rests with, will stand before Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and all the ungodliness of that system instead of standing for God. Now, that's what the evil day is all about. And I'm telling you, we go to camp this year, we're going to talk about building the wall. Could be no greater theme. And uh, when I saw that, I mean, I didn't know what the theme was. And the moment I walked in and you guys put that up there and I saw building the wall, I had my all five lessons all done out, know what I needed to do. And it's a thing where it's a great, great, great theme. And I'm telling you, you know, you're either going to come to the place where you're either going to grow up and you're going to stand before God or you're going to stand before the world. Amen. And it's always been interesting to me that it took three years to do that. You know, that's how long it took Christ to get his disciples to, uh, and get everybody ready to take over after he left. Three years. If you give your kids to the world for three years, by the time that three years is up, you'll probably most likely never get them back. And if you give your kids to God for three years and put everything in their life and and you give me your world for three years and let me put the people, the things in your life, I promise you, when it comes to the world, you'll never look back. And this is where you want your children to be. This is why Proverbs 31 is absolutely so incredibly important. Because when Daniel went through this and faced his evil day, when he was taken from his parents where nobody would know what he did right or wrong and he could have justified it and rationalized it and said whatever he wanted to say because of the situation it is. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it said, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. And our verse says that she is not afraid of the snow. She's not afraid of winter. She's not afraid of the snow. This woman of Proverbs 31 she she's not afraid when the winter times comes and the snow come for her household. And as I said, this will be a time in the lives in their lives when when you can no longer uh, protect them. You can no longer guard everything that they see and every person that they're around. This will be the time in their life when the cold blast of winter will hit them right in the face from the world. This is where they're going to be faced with what. Science says could happen if we ever had <coughs> a nuclear uh, holocaust across this world and it, it, it would black out the sun for a 100 years and all life would die and only people that could live in the caves underground would survive and it's called a nuclear winter. And I want to tell you something. When that nuclear winter and that evil day hits your kid face square on, Many of them will never see the son of Jesus Christ ever again. And it's a time when the outside influences that you have no control over, you send them out to school and they start to go out on their own or they're eight or nine or they're ten and they start to go this and some teacher now has them all day long where you were the teacher that had them up to a certain point in their life. Now the outside influences that have you have no control over Will now bring its icy wind into their life to take from them the warmth and the safety and the security of god 's home and god 's life and your home and your love and introduce them to the frozen cold of the nuclear winter of this world and winter time is coming now this household that we keep seeing pop up here we saw in verse fifteen where she this virtuous woman rose up in the night, early, church age, and she gave meat, Bible doctrine, to her household first. It's a picture of the early years of those, her kids' lives. She saw her family, verse 16, as her field, and she bought it. She knew the truth of what she had, verse 15, food from afar, and that it was good verse 18 and she went to work making their clothes that's what the chapter's all about it isn't her, it's simply about a woman and it's a picture of you and me but in the context it's dealing with your household she's just sitting at that spindle making clothes for her children why because she knows winter's coming and she went to work making those clothes so that the winter would winter wind would not affect her family, her household. She's she understands a great Bible truth concerning the evil day, winter and snow and children. You know, parents make a terrible mistake uh when it comes to their children. And I I I I have seen this almost all of my ministry. And they get the idea that the way to make sure that their children are going to survive the world is to completely isolate their kids from the world. And, you know, and, and, and that'll work for a short period of time. But then when you lose control of that and they go out and face it, they are totally unprepared. It's like taking some kid who just got out of high school and dumping him in the battlefield in Vietnam or putting him ashore on D-Day and see how long he survives. He's not been trained to deal with those circumstances. The key is not isolation. The key is insulation. Getting into their world and training them and preparing them just like you would do some young soldier that's going to face the rigors of war and combat. And of course, they do this because there will come a day that uh, that all that will keep your child safe and warm from that winter is what you prepared them for and isolated them again. That's Daniel. Daniel is very clear that somebody spent a lot of time insulating him before he ever got taken captivity. And when he faced that, somebody had done the work in his life. And this will be the close that we make with the work of your hands through God's word. You know, and honestly, when I look at kids, moms and dads, families, parenting and all that stuff, I think, hands down, the most tragic thing, and I know a lot of tragic things happen, But I hear again, rolling it down to the lowest common denominator, I think the most most tragic, catastrophic thing that could ever happen in any family is for a mom and dad to lose the influence with your household. That somebody else has more influence in their life now than you do. That some gym teacher has more influence, some teacher at school, some track coach, some football coach, some whatever, now takes the place and their influence, or maybe just the friends they're hanging out with, they now become more influential in their life than you do. But our dear woman here, bless her heart, that's virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31, she's not afraid. You know why she's not afraid? Jump down to verse 27. Because verse 27 says, She looketh well to the ways of her household, And she eateth not the bread of idols. You know, I've looked at that verse so many times over the years. And I understand what it's talking about. You know, she looketh to the ways of her household. I get that. But the other thing, the bread of idleness, you know, I mean, I I thought about that. You know, I I don't, maybe, I don't think I ever did think about that till this week. And it just hit me. The bread of idols. Now, we know bread's the word of God. But this woman is not messing with the word of God in idleness, you know you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of so many moms and dads that go to church every Sunday, carry their Bibles, take all kinds of notes for the sermon, do all kinds of studies, but never take any study or anything or any time to take the bread and give it to their meat, to their household. Amen. And when it comes to your family, the bread that you spend so much time getting for yourself is idleness because the most first thing that you feel you should buy is your household. Oh, I'm telling you, when I saw that this week, I thought, to myself, maybe I'll just stop right there and give the invitation. Because that's a powerful thing. Because we think because we go to church and because we have a Bible and the right Bible and put all the notes in your Bible and how those things come to Bible study, that that's going to be an assurance. No, it's not. In many cases, if you're not fixing meat for your household, whatever you're doing in the Bible, the bread is idleness. Because the first ministry you have is your household. And, you know, and she's, like, she's like Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And I, I love this verse where it just simply says in Samuel that none of his words fall to the ground. And when it comes to your family first, your household, let none of the words fall to the ground. And now it says, moving right on here, now the reason she's not afraid, she's not afraid of the winter, she's not afraid of the snow, is because the verse says that her household is now clothed in scarlet. Now, let's develop this truth for a few minutes. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible. I, I don't know... The, the depth that you are associated with the Bible. But but let me say this to you. Everything in the New Testament is, is from a doctrinal pouring out of truth. But the New Testament by itself, as good as it is, God never intended that to be all you had. So what he did was, is he gave us the Old Testament That in the Old Testament, through the types and the pictures and the stories, the New Testament doctrines become revealed and clearer. Now you take this thing about her household now clothed with scarlet. There's a story in the Old Testament that exactly explains what he's saying here. And this is a great story, a great study in the Bible that will illustrate this truth found in Proverbs chapter 31, verse uh, 21. And it's found in the book of Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. And I want to read that chapter to you. So just turn on back there and and follow along. And then we'll show, show you how this thing works. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thy house, for they come to search out all the country. And a woman took the two men and hid them and said, thus, uh, there came two men unto me, but I, I don't know which way they went. I don't know. Uh, and, 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 and the woman, uh, you know, and, and it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, uh, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whether the men went, I don't know. Pursue after them quickly, and you shall overtake them. She basically said, they went that away. way And she hid them. She didn't turn them in, but she had brought them, verse 6, uh, up to the roof of the house and hid them with stalks of flax, which she laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan under the fords, uh, and then as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they had laid down, she came up unto them, under, upon the roof, and said unto the men... I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what he did unto those two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sidon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you? For the Lord your God is uh, for the Lord your God he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token and that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours. If ye utter not this our business, it shall be, when the Lord hath given us the land that we shall deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the wo- town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountains, lest the pursuers meet you, and, and hide yourselves there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward you may go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. Behold, when we come unto this land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou dost let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out from the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless, and whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our heads, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quiet of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she says, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and departed, and she bound the scarlet thread in the window. And and they went and came under the mountain and abode there three days until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all things that befell them. And he said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. Now this is an absolutely incredible story in the Bible. And this is a story... As from the Bible historically as what leads to the battle of Jericho a little later on in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And, uh, you know, last Thursday night, uh, 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 a couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked me a question out of Acts. I think it was Rachel asked me the question in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, why when you get over there and, and Stephen is doing his preaching. He changes the name Joshua to Jesus. And uh, I told you that night that the scholarship will tell you that that's a mistranslation. But then we all know that scholarship is a mistranslation. We know that there's a reason for that. And I told you, whenever you find that in the Bible, it's going to be a great picture of something. And now here today, uh, Rachel, you're going to get to see an example of it. And uh, you better understand it. And uh, it's a great key because the book of Joshua, Joshua will be a picture of the second coming of Christ. And Joshua will be a stand-in in these stories of these great battles of the second coming of Christ as Jesus. So the Holy Spirit of God had the translators put the word uh, Joshua in for Jesus or Jesus for Joshua to draw your attention that the whole book of, of Joshua is a picture. In fact, the battle of Jericho is an incredible picture of the battle of Armageddon the second coming of Christ against Babylon. And it's an incredible picture. Now, inspirationally, you will see this as a great picture of how you and I got saved and how it, it it fits right into our study today in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 21 and 22, and how that all of her household is clothed in scarlet. And why? Because of that, she doesn't fear the winter. She's not afraid of the snow. And when you see this unfold right before your eyes, then you'll better have an understanding of, of where it's at. Now, let's follow the storyline here for a moment, and let's get, let's get our cast of characters going here. First of all, you got two men who are spies, they are sent into the land to spy out the land uh, from a man named Joshua who we now know is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two men will represent for us, me and you, as New Testament Christians. We're, this old world, we may be in this world, but this old world is not our home. We're here to spy out the land. And God, when we spy out the land, God's going to put circumstances in our life. People, Oh, that'll bring us up to our second person, that's Rahab. And where these two spies are pictures of you and me who have the authority from Joshua, Jesus, to make deals with somebody about their salvation, Rahab is a, is a sinner. Bible says she's a harlot, Rahab the harlot. And uh, she's much like the woman at the well in John chapter 6. And uh, then you have the king of Jericho. Now, that'll be the devil, indoctrinated the Antichrist, but in an inspirational sense, it'll be the world system under the devil. And Rahab lives within this system. So it's a picture of a woman who is a sinner who is caught up in all of the ungodliness of the world, Jericho, who two men come in and God's Holy Spirit puts them together. Well, let's just walk through it here together. In verse 1, Joshua sends out the spies. Rahab, verses 1 and 2, she knows who they are. And she takes them in. Verses two and three, the king of Jericho gets words and somebody said, hey, we just saw two guys go into the hooker's house over there and you better check it out because they weren't from around here and I think they might be Hebrews. So the king of Jericho gets word and he says to her, I want those two guys that showed up into your house. Verses four and five, she hides them and says, they went this way, and I don't know, they came in, I wouldn't let them in, and they're gone, they took off, they went that away. way and if you guys go quickly, you can still catch them. And all the time, she's hit them up on the roof, covering them up in flax, Proverbs chapter 31. She's hitting them up there, and they're under there, and she's dead a little while, and before it's time to go to bed, she goes up, and she talks to these guys, this will be verses 8 through 11, And she said, hey, I want you to know, I've heard what your God can do. I hid you guys because I don't want to be part of this anymore. We have heard when you came across the Red Sea that God opened up the Red Sea. And Pharaoh was trying to get you and God delivered you and brought you through the dry ground. And then we heard that when Pharaoh came after you, he closed up the sea And killed them all. Your God's the powerful God, guys. We heard that when you got on the side of Jordan, those two kings wanted to stop you and how you utterly destroyed them. We know you got a great God you serve. You know he's all-powerful. And we also know his judgment's going to fall on Jericho And I'm telling you what, I don't care how big and tough you think everybody is and how the king of Jericho beats his chest and says this, they're trembling in their boots at your approach to Jericho. Now, boys, I'm asking for mercy here. I'm asking you to show, I've showed you kindness. I could have turned you over. But I don't want to do that. And I know I don't have a Bible yet. And I know that I don't have Genesis written yet because Moses hasn't got around to it. But I think it's going to say something like, I'll bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse thee. i blessed you. Now you need to bless me. And I'm asking, guys, that when God's judgment falls on Jericho, you give me a true token. Not a bus token. Not a streetcar token. You give me a true token. And verses 12 and 13, she asked for mercy for her and her household. And she wants a true token of the promise that she and her family will be saved from God's coming judgment. And what and and the true token that she gets is a scarlet thread in the window of her house that as long as her household is under the promise of the scarlet thread, when God's judgment comes, her household will be saved. And The two spies are back off to headquarters after a couple of days and they give their report. Now, in our story, this scarlet thread will be the binding power. Listen to me carefully. Now, in our study, in our story, this scarlet thread will be the binding power of the Word of God in our lives as to the promises of God's salvation to you and to me and your household. Titus chapter one verse two says, and hope of God who cannot lie, uh, hope of eternal life, who God who cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world." Revelation chapter ten verse thirteen says, "For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." You have through the word of God the binding power of a scarlet thread that binds you to the promises of God and your household. And as long as your household, as long as all the household stayed in that house under the scarlet thread, they were saved. Amen. It's when they would allow them to go out on the street and be part of the world system of Jericho that they're no longer under that. And I'm just telling you. Now, all this is a picture of the binding and the loosing of the sins that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, that it tells us that you and I have the power to do that through the word of God. Verse 18 of chapter 18 of Matthew says, "'Verily I say unto you, "'Whatsoever you shall bind on earth "'shall be bound in heaven, "'and whatsoever you shall loose on earth "'shall be loosed in heaven.'" That is the greatest verse in the Bible that shows you and me have the power to meet up with a Rahab and who is lost but wants God's mercy and to on the authority of the Word of God, showing her the true token, the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you do know that when Jesus Christ went to the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 28, to die and pay the price for your sins and my sins, they took his rope off and put on a scarlet robe. That scarlet robe, that scarlet thread, her clothes, her kids, her household, clothed in scarlet is a picture of God's salvation in your life and the promises that he gave you with it. The true token. And you and I have the power to meet a Rahab, the harlot, and to sit down with them and open up the word of God and show them the true token of Jesus Christ. Show them the promise of the scarlet thread. Show them that on the cross, he wore that scarlet robe to pay for your sins and my sins. And then show them how to, they can have be set free from their sins Amen. through the true token. And if you're saved here this morning and you've been set free from your sins, you know why you have been? Because somebody sat down and put a scarlet thread in the window of your house. And when God's judgment passes over, he'll pass over you. Yet at the same time, you can sit down with that same Rahab the harlot. Or it doesn't have to be a Rahab. It can be a man. It could be Rick the homo. It doesn't matter. (laughs) And you walk them through the Bible and you show them the principles and the promises and they say, no thanks. I like my life the way it is. You know what you do then? Through the power that you have with the word of God or the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, if that person gets saved, you loose them. If that person says, no thanks, then through the word of God, God using you, then you bind them to their sins. And that's a picture of the power of our salvation through Jesus, Joshua, through the scarlet thread. Now, I I want you to see this too. These two men, uh, she gets salvation from two guys that have the authority from Joshua, Jesus, to make a deal with her salvation because of a scarlet thread. Did you see that? That's you and me. That's you and me having the power because you're saved in the authority of the word of God to change people's lives, to loose them from their sins or bind them to their sins. And that's you and me as his witnesses today. And in our text today, our virtuous woman, she's not afraid of the winter because her children are all clothed in scarlet. Her household saved. She has made for them at the spindle from the early years of their life, she has made for them, fitted to them, clothed them with the garments of salvation. You know why she's not afraid? Because they're all saved. They're all under the scarlet thread. The clothes she make are made out of the same material that the robe that he wore to the cross was scarlet. And and you see another great principle here. Parents and everything in their child's life uh, that goes on should be, will be, or should be they should be the first line of defense the for their own children. You shouldn't, I, I mean, I don't want to lessen the importance of myself because then I'll have a bad day thinking I ain't any good. And I don't want to lessen the importance of God's structure of the church. But I want to tell you something. Me, this church, or anybody in it, is a failed second attempt over you being the first line of defense in your children's life. We have to do it sometimes. I have to do it sometimes. But I just assume not do it because it's your job, not mine. And, you know, uh, it's a thing where verse, uh, Proverbs 31, she, she, she does her work. She does her work early in the morning. She rises while it's still night in the springtime of their life. And she makes them garments of salvation. She makes them clothes of scarlet that will carry them through when winter comes. And winter will come. And I I told you before, you know, my main concern is all you young couples that have young kids. And I know that, uh, you know, I work with many, many of the older pa- parents who, their kid when they came to church, their kids were already in their teens, you know, and some of them are already having issues. I get it. And I don't blame you for that. Or there's a plan that we can do. I, 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 I understand that. I mean, uh, but I'm going to tell you something. There's two things that will define us as Parents. One of the things that will define us is how we prepare the clothes in the spring times of their life to get them through that winter. The second thing will define you and me as parents is once you lose those kids, once the world sucks them up and takes them in, the prodigal son syndrome, then you watch what that parent does to get them back. There's five things you do not to lose them. And then there's five things you do when you keep them back, want to get them back. And those two things on either side of parenting will define what a parent really is in their relationship with God. And I'm telling you, it's a lot easier to do the first five than it is to try to regain the ground in the second five. But it can be done. But that's where you have to make the hard line choices. That's where you have to take a hardline stand. We call that the prodigal son syndrome, and I guarantee you. The prodigal son would have never come back if mom and dad were uber-fooding to him and wiring him money so he didn't have to eat the pig husk and didn't have to live in the mud. He never would have come back. But you see, many parents, they just can't go that route. And then they wonder why nothing ever changes. As moms and dads you young couples, you have to do the work. You have to provide the meat for your household in the early years of their life, before the evil day comes, because there will come a time, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, where they will look you in the face with tears running down your cheeks and say, Mom and Dad, I don't have any pleasure in God anymore. I don't have any pleasure in spiritual things. I'm sorry. You want to go to church for you? It's okay. I got big plans for myself. It's coming. And then verse 22. I'd like to say, this, move on to a lighter thought, but it won't be. <laughs> she maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Now here's another great truth for us as moms and dads and parents in dealing with our household. And that is the context of this. Is we have to keep ourselves right with God and invested in growing in the Word of God to keep our household growing. I got out in the world, and this is not, not really a criticism, but I got out in the world probably when I was junior high age. And I've never forgotten this, and I was out in the world for quite a while till, you know, I got out of the Army and all the things that told you how that all went down. But I, I, I've looked back on it, and this is not a criticism to my mom or my dad, but it's just the truth. I, I look at things in reality. I, I don't make judgments on things, uh, whether I like this person or that based on that. I just look at the reality of life. My mom and dad were charter members of the Canton Baptist Temple when Dr. Harold Henniger came out of J. Frank Norris's group and started that church about 1948. My mom and dad were all from Maryland, the state of Maryland. And uh, we're coal miners from our heritage. Uh, my grandpa was a coal miner. All my uncles and them were coal miners and from West Virginia and, and Maryland. And uh, during the war, uh, there was no jobs in Maryland. So Canton, Ohio, was the... Uh, center of the steel industry and they were going to town for the war effort. So my mom and dad moved, this is before I was born now, my mom and dad moved up here and he went to work at the Republic Steel and my mom went to work at Timpkins. She made bullets and he made whatever he made, steel for whatever they were going to build with him. They come up to get a job and and jobs were good and plentiful then. So God used that to get the rest of my dad's side family almost up here uh, not all of them, some of them, but certainly all of my mom's family moved up here. Her mom and dad and the brothers and the sisters all migrated up here to Canton, Ohio. And, and uh, you know, because uh, that's where the jobs were. Well, wrong about that time, about 1948 or something like that, Harold Henniger started the Canton Baptist Temple, which was right across the street from my house. 1451 Alden Avenue. You can Google it sometime. Look it up. That house right there, it's got that big fixture face on the, on the roof of it. You can't miss it. The church is still there. And my mom and dad got saved in that church. The associate pastor's name was Ronnie Cannon, who later, another one of Norris's boys, who later started the Lima, Ohio Baptist ch- uh, Temple. And he won my mom and dad to Christ. And my mom and dad went to go to that church. They were charter members in that church. And they went there for uh, probably till I was eight or nine years old. And then something happened. I don't know for sure what happened, but my mom and dad got an attitude about the church. My dad was involved in the sound thing. He worked a sound thing. He was good electronics. And, uh, but I don't know what happened. I got an idea what happened, but I ain't sure what happened. But anyway, something happened. And my mom and dad got mad and never went back to church for a long time. The next time my dad went back to church was his funeral. And my mom, the next time she went back to church was right after my dad died. God uses things like that. That's when I went back to church. But anyway, I can remember this as clear as anything. I got out of fellowship, but I was in junior high, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And I'll tell you why I did My mom and dad got mad at the preacher, quit going to church. And I can remember every Sunday morning, my mom would dress me, give me a hug, fix me breakfast, put my best clothes on, and send me out the door to go across the street to go to church. But you see, that wasn't enough because I didn't need my mom and dad to send me to church. I needed my mom and dad to take me to church. I needed my mom and dad to do the things in my life that mom and dad needed to do. And they didn't do it. And I got out of fellowship. And I'm not blaming them. I'm I'm not. I'm I'm not sitting here blaming my problems on them. Hey, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you the facts. Because once I lost that influence, there was a kid, kids in Sunday school that had the wrong influence that I went to school with. And that's the way that I went. And I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. That verse says she maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. You have to make sure as moms and dads that you're right on on cue with the word of God where you need to be. And it's just that simple. We have to keep ourselves right with God, keep ourselves involved in growing and keeping our household going. No matter where your kids are at, whatever they do, You know, your children, my children spiritually will uh, totally depend on on where we're at with the Lord. It's just that simple. Our household will be our reflection uh, in the mirror of where we are really at with the Lord. I mean, it's just that simple. And and I'm telling you, you know, I've seen so many pastors, I've seen so many Christians that they get on this bandwagon about soul winning, they get on this bandwagon of serving God. I've seen them, I've heard them preach. And they're up there and they're going on and on and on and on and on. Hey, I know, I know human nature 101. And they're up there talking about soul winning, serving God, doing all this thing and winning people to Christ and preachers preaching soul winning conferences. And you know what? They can't even get their kids to come to church. You know why they do things like that? To kind of erode the feelings that they failed back here instead of just dealing with it and doing what the Bible says you ought to do. And that's the way human nature is. We all don't like to face our real issues. It's much easier for me as it is for you. If I have a problem in my life, it's much easier for me to focus on some other area that I don't have a problem in so I don't have to deal with what I do have. I'm just telling you. When you clothe your children, your household in scarlet, when you get them saved. And you know, that's what most parents live for. I know, I talked to them all the time for almost 50 years. They do everything they can, and this is where you got to be careful. They do everything they can because they want that kid saved. And who does it? But many times they make the mistake that when the kid is too young, they jump at it because without giving it a chance to work itself out because I get it. We went through the same thing with my two. I mean, we did. I remember they, they you know, they, they got to be, how old were you when you got saved? Nine. Nine. Uh, Jamie, how old were you? Nine. Jamie's at the Methodist Church today. She's not here. Okay. <laughs> how old was she? Nine, would you guys conspire against this? But I remember, I remember many times you came to us and wanted to get saved. What did we tell you? No. Not like that, but we told you no. <laughs> and it was a thing where, you know, it, it, they may have started coming when they were five, six, or seven. And I'll tell you, they go to church, they hear it all the time, they see people getting saved. And they want to get saved, which is a good thing. But Paul says in Romans chapter 7, sin better become exceedingly sinful. You better understand you're not getting saved because everybody else is. You're not getting saved because so-and-so did or your friends did. You're getting saved because you have a personal sin debt that needs to be taken care of personally. Now, how old can you be to understand that? I don't know, but you better figure it out before you take them through the threshold of salvation. And I'm telling you, uh, and every parent, that's what they want. And they, they say, oh, I can't." Oh, little Johnny got saved. Oh, little Mary Marie, she got saved last week. And we're all happy about it. But the bottom line is, you think it's all over now. When in reality, they're getting saved and getting the scarlet thread in their life may have made it okay for eternity, but they got to live the rest of their life down here. And actually, honestly, truthfully, when they get saved, it is a great thing, and praise the Lord. But I want to tell you something, being on the level, I want to tell you something, it's only the beginning. Most of, most of God's people, they think it's, that's it. They got saved. Praise the Lord. All right, let's just forget all about it. No, <laughs> no, no. There's an evil day coming, Amen. and you better wrap them up and make them some clothes. Okay, praise the Lord. You got the scarlet clothes to keep them garments of salvation. Now you better get the one that's going to keep them from being naked at the judgment seat. I, I've said it all my ministry, all my life, and it's a dying truth. Children, children never cause issues in the household, but rather they just expose the issues that are already there. And in this chapter, you, you got to see it. In this chapter, the word household just keeps popping up. And that's because God's plan for redeeming the world was the families, family units, ministering the word of God together. Not, not under the handicap of just doing it myself, but building in your household a team that all your, all your household is clothed in scarlet. And now you recognize that everything rises and falls on leadership. And now is when your job really begins. And throughout this chapter, we have been seen by example, this woman full of God's virtue. And we've seen a pattern develop. This is why I'm asking you week by week to keep these things cataloged. We're seeing a pattern for all of us develop. We see her filled with the virtue of God, and we understand what that is now. Then we see her seeking wool and flax. She's going out after it. And she's willing, works willingly with her hands. She understands that her food comes from a far country, and she knows what she had is good. She sees her household as her first field that she has to buy, and she buys it totally and completely. Then as verse 22 says today, she sees herself and she girds her loins with truth that strengthens her hands to the work. And she makes sure that she stays where she needs to be with God because she has to be there for the leadership of her household. Because the household will depend on mom and dad, not like my mom and dad, but the mom and dad that stays together in the word of God and carries through in the word of God, that understand that there's an evil day coming. There's a winter time. There's a snowfall going to hit your household at some point. And right now, you better be making the clothes. She makes sure that her candle didn't ever go out. And with that candle, she rises while it is yet night, while it's still early in those kids' lives. And she gives meat to her household, and, but a portion to others. We talked about that. And through this biblical process, her children, her household get saved. And now she has the ability to get them ready for winter. for she knows winter's coming. She knows that she's only got, what, five or six years maybe before that child steps out in kindergarten or day school or some other place where now somebody else is going to be infusing ideas in their minds. But she's not afraid. She ain't afraid. You know why? Because of the true token. That scarlet thread in her window... That as long as her household stays in that scar, under that scarlet thread, the winner won't ever hurt them. Now, all through this chapter, you will see over and over and over again the very intimate details of ministry, and this is what I want you to see as we come through this: how the Old Testament works with the New Testament. Uh, All that we're looking at here is much like the crucifixion. And, And I've told you this before. You know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is where most of God's people, if not all of God's people, hang their hat for going back and looking at Christ dying on the cross. What a shame and a waste of time that is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the skeleton details But to really see what God went through on that cross, you got to get in his mind. You got to get the very thoughts that when he, from 6 o'clock in the morning, when he stood before Pilate to 6 o'clock at night, when he gave up the ghost, what he felt, what he thought, and what he was feeling. Little Sharon Gowans asked me last week about the Old Testament, how to lay out The timeline, because I've told you many before, the Old Testament records almost hour by hour that day of crucifixion. And she said, could you lay that out for me? And I told you I would, and so I'm going to do it right now for you, just for you. Because you're a crafty woman. (laughs) The price that was paid. Almost hour by hour. The sacrifice. You know you know why you and I won't become a living sacrifice? Because you don't understand really the sacrifice that he was for you. It's just that simple. Oh, I know you love God. You love the Bible. And you come to church. Hey, A+. plus. But at the end of the day, there'll always be something that'll keep you going that extra mile. And it's, 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 it's the fact that we are saved. We... We love God, we love the book, but we put limits. And all that we've ever done is went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and looked at the crucifixion and never, 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 never really got inside his mind to understand what he was thinking while he was paying the price for you and me to have the true token. The very thoughts of Christ on the cross the real reason we don't serve him. You go to Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. And you'll begin to see where he's before Pilate around 6 a.m. in the morning. And he's there for a couple of hours and what they do to him and question him. Then they take him on the way to the cross along that long road and this is where Simon the Serenian is thrown into the mix because he's already so weak from the beatings and the whippings and the things that they did to him. Now he starts that long journey to the cross, and that'll be Job chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. Then they finally get to that place called Golgotha, Gordon's Calvary, outside the city. And they lay the cross on the ground and they lay him on it and they put the nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And then they pick up that cross and there's a hole there about four or five feet deep and they begin to line that cross with a hole nailed to that cross and begin to work it up and he find in that chapter in Job chapter 30 what he's feeling. He talks about the young men that are moving his feet and his hands. He talks about being lifted up and the, catching the wind in his face. How, how refreshing that little wind must have been after what he'd been through in that morning. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've read that passage many, many times as I thought of what he paid for me. And I stopped at that point and just thank God that he sent that little bit of breeze for him. Just that little cool breeze for what was coming, for what he'd already been through. Yet most of God's people don't even know where Job chapter 30 is in their Bible, let alone trying to see how it fits into the timeline. Then you have from the 6th to the ninth hour, probably the most difficult time for me anyhow to wrap my head around. Because it's from the sixth to the ninth hour where he actually pays the sin debt for every man, woman and child that would spend an eternity in the lake of fire in those three hours times, he pays that price for everybody. And this is where he cries out, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" This is where, as many preachers teach wrongly, Christ didn't go to hell but the devil brought hell to him on a cross. This is where he says, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" That's what a man in hell says. This is where he says, "I thirst." Luke chapter 16. That's what a man in hell says. And this is where the Bible says that his bones are burnt black with heat. This is where the Bible says that his bowels actually boil. This is where he hang on that cross. Every bone is pulled out of joint from the weight of the cross. And this will be the sixth and the ninth hour. And this will be Psalms 22. Then I guess the greatest unknown part of this, my true token, my scarlet thread. It's found in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 and 8 when you see the real bottom line. You see, most people that, most people that read the crucifixion, preach on the crucifixion, or talk about the crucifixion, they think that it was a bunch of half-crazed, demon-possessed scribes and Pharisees and a bunch of Roman soldiers beating and taking the life of a man named Jesus, but we see it as our salvation. I want you to know, if that's all the farther you ever get in the Bible, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Because Isaiah chapter 50 verses 7 and 8 shows you the real meaning behind that day. Because there in the midst of the slapping and the beating and the, and the whipping and all of the screaming and the crowds and the crucify him, crucify him, two minds met at Calvary. It was the mind of God and the mind of the devil. And Jesus said unto him, Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7 and 8, whom is mine adversary? Let him come unto me. And boy, he did. And out of that, six to the ninth hour, we find at six o'clock in the evening, he gives up the ghost and he says, it is finished. It is finished. The true token is now ready to be delivered to you and me. You know, you say to see the same thing in, in, in Song of Solomon. First John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Uh, with the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son cleansed us from all sin. And that's a great book on fellowship. But if you really want fellowship and understand fellowship, it's Song of Solomon. It's spending the time to go back through there and see actually his heart and mind and thoughts when he looks at you. And then he tells you what your hearts and mind and thoughts should be when you think about him. How many of God's people ever do that? Ministry's the same way. Proverbs chapter 31. You know, Paul's writings will give you the overview of the work of the ministry. It'll give you the history, the development, give you the time frame. It'll tell you where the work starts. It'll tell us that he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it on the day of Jesus Christ. He, he, he shows us, you know, why God does uh, reaching the world the way that he does it through the family. You get all that from Paul's writings. But for an inside look at our mindset, us understanding the mind of God, the work that he started, the work that he started in you the day you got the scarlet thread, the true token for you and me to carry on the work, you got to go to places like Proverbs chapter 31. That's what we're seeing. Every piece of how we should understand not just what we do, but understand the mind of the minister, the motivation behind it. Seeing that it doesn't start with just you getting saved and serving God, seeing that God's whole work is based on your family, your household your responsibilities, my responsibilities. And this will form for us the attitude of heart as a child of God to set in motion the action of doing the work that God has saved us for. This will save us from the idle bread that we're also famous for filling our cupboards with. Wrong attitude will produce the wrong action that will produce the wrong work. Not getting God's mind in ministry because we never get his mindset when he provided for us the true token of the scarlet thread. So we look at the crucifixion as a eh, blase, blow through it. We look at our relationship with God as eh, yeah, I'll kick my Bible, read, pray, do all those things. And we never, never really get God's mind on the real issues of what price was paid and why, what fellowship really is and why did what, why we need it, and in an understanding of the ministry. Sitting at that spindle, making clothes. Clothes for those unsaved who cannot close themselves, garments of salvation. Clothes for men and women after they are saved, starting with your household, that bring them to the point that at the judgment seat of Christ, they're clothed in robes of righteousness. Now, what I'm about to give you is completely lost today. And I, I make no apologies for it because I really don't care. Now, this is how the Old Testament and New Testament will go together for you. It's the key to learning your Bible. Really, one of the keys. The Old Testament and the New Testament are two completely different dispensations, but they fit together perfectly in the Bible laying itself out. The New Testament will have all the doctrinal details of everything we should believe and do. Starts with Romans after the book of Acts, goes into First and 2 Corinthians goes into, uh, you know, Colossians, Ephesians, and, and Galatians, and all of those. And then it moves into the personal thing with the books that Paul writes to New Testament Christians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So the New Testament will have all the doctrinal details of what we believe and why we ought to believe them. It sets a pattern. But the Old Testament will have all the inner details of the doctrines of the New Testament that are expressed, and we learn it through the types and the pictures. Just like we saw the scarlet thread in Proverbs 30 and the scarlet in Joshua chapter 2. Just like you go back to Exodus chapter 16 and you see the manna from heaven, and then you really understand what the Word of God is. Just as you go back to those places where you see Christ's thoughts on the cross for you and for me, then you understand what the crucifixion really is. Just like you go back and you can read about uh, the the relationship with God, but till you go to Song of Solomon and see the pictures, and I've told you many, many times that the Bible is just a picture book for Christians, for you and for me. It's like those children Bibles that you start your kid out with; they got large print. And they go story by story. You'll start out with the story of creation. And you'll go a couple of pages and then there'll be a picture of God's creation. The picture helps illustrate for a little kid what you just read. Then you'll go through Adam and Eve's story, you know, and then you'll go through that. And then there'll be a picture of Adam and Eve standing there, you know, holding an apple with a snake wrapped around a tree limb. And that picture helps the kid understand what you just read. Because kids, children need a picture. Then you get into Noah's flood, you know, and you get Noah, you know, read about that. and there'll be a big picture of the ark and all the animals going in, and Noah standing there, you know, and and it's the pictures that illustrate the truths. And God told us that except you come with me as a little child, you have no part of me. Amen. And if you're educated today, when it comes to the Bible, you got a Ph.D. or a doctor's degree or or, uh, you know, uh, whatever you got, you know uh, what, you're you're in trouble because all that biblical higher education does is destroy your faith of being a little child. God doesn't want you smarter every day when it comes to the Bible. He wants you dumber every day when you come to the Bible because he wants you to have that childlike faith that whatever he tells you, you'll believe. He wants to tell you that 2,000 years ago, a dead Jew hanging on a tree had enough power in his blood to be the true token for your salvation. And you'll believe that, amen. Then he wants to tell you that he preserved a book down through history and gave you a perfect rendition of his word that you can be the true token of what he did for you. And you see, the educated world, they'll get the first one, but they'll lose the second one. They can't see the fact that the same... God, who brought Jesus through a human woman into a human family and kept him sinless, couldn't bring the written word of God through the hands of centuries of men and keep it perfect. But we can, because we're stupid. Gary Potter says you can't fix stupid. I don't want to fix stupid. I look very well stupid. Somebody say to me, Bob, what's that look on your face? Stupid. How do you feel today, Bob? Stupid. Stupid. What are you going to do today, Bob? Stay stupid. I just want to believe whatever God tells me. I don't want any outside influence coming in and saying, well, this is not what it should be. The Bible's a picture book. And all through that Bible, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see thousands of pictures. You'll see the doctrine in the New Testament and you'll understand it by the pictures in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 2. The Bible is like walking through an art gallery at midnight with the lights off. And on the wall are all these pictures. You know you're in an art gallery and you know you're walking through the halls, but you're not sure what section of the art gallery you're in until you turn on the flashlight and look at the pictures on the wall. And then you say, oh, I'm in the Renaissance period. Oh, I'm in the early period. Oh, I'm in the the later period. And for you and for me, the Word of God we walk through, it's the pictures that tell us where we're at, but it needs the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God, your flashlight, to show you the pictures. And when he does, then you see it clearly. New Testament doctrine, listen to me very carefully, New Testament doctrine is defined through the Old Testament pictures. The New Testament and its principles and its doctrines will be revealed to you through the pictures in the Old Testament. Now watch this. You have an Old Testament. The word Old has three letters. The word testament has nine letters. So you have in the Old Testament 39 books in the Old Testament. Now if the New Testament reveals the Old Testament, then we should find it. If the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament pictures and revealed through it, and there's 39 books in the Old Testament, then we ought to find the New Testament books in there. So when we take the 39 books of the Old Testament and take the three and the nine and multiply three times nine, we come up with 27, which is the exact number of the books in the New Testament. Your New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament and where Paul will give you the doctrinal material and the truth of it on the surface. You've got to go back and let the Old Testament reveal for you through the pictures of what the New Testament really is saying. Whether it be Christ's death on the cross, whether it be the Word of God from Exodus chapter, go on all day long. Your own relationship with God, Song of Solomon. Your salvation of the true token, Joshua chapter 2. It's filled with a 1,000 pictures that will illustrate. And my job here, what we do in people ministry, what we do in Bible Institute, what we do on Thursday night, what we do on Sunday morning, right now, my job is to lay out and show you how the two work together. Now, I know as well as I'm standing here, many of you will never get it. And the only reason you never get it, not because you're, you're, you're having an inability to get it, you'll get it because you don't want to get it. But if just one of you, if just one or two of you pick that up that it's worth however many years I've spent trying to get you to see it because you will never understand your household. You'll never understand your relationship. You'll never understand you and I being a living sacrifice till you get past the New Testament and get it all revealed from the Old Testament and let God show you through the pictures the real price that was paid and why we should finish the work that he started. Proverbs chapter 31 is an incredible chapter. It's a chapter that shows you and me the mindset that we should have based on the true token that God gave us. Every head bowed every eye closed.